on 96.7 on your FM dial. You're listening to CKLU. If you have tuned into 96.7, you know you can listen also synchronously online to cklu.ca. If you want to listen asynchronously, there is another option. Just use podcasts. Google my name, Hugh Cruzel, H-U-G-H-K-R-U-Z-E-L, and the word podcast, and you'll come across multiple platforms. Choose your favorite from Spotify to Apple to Google. Anchor FM hosts them all. The guest that I have today is going to talk about leadership, and during this pandemic time, leadership is its a huge piece of the solution and, unfortunately, the problem. My guest today, Conway Fraser. You've written a book, Conway, and it's not... I should say it's not fresh, but it is fresh. It's fresh 2020, right? That's right. Yeah, it came out in uh, January 2020, uh, co-authored with um, uh, another communications uh, professional, not somebody I work with, uh, someone who's a competitor, actually, uh, a fellow by the name of Jeff Chatterton. And we sat down a couple of years ago and came up with this idea of, uh, of putting two minds together and writing a book. And uh, yeah, it came out in January and uh, did well, sort of hit the Amazon international bestseller list by early February. And then uh, and then we all just hold up in our houses for the next two and a half months. And the title, let's give the audience the title so they know they can go still to, uh, is it at Chapters Indigo? Uh, it's on Amazon, on Amazon.com. If anybody, uh, find me online. The reality is, Hugh, is uh, I've got boxes of these books that were sort of printed for conferences and speaking engagements and book launches and all these sorts of things. And um, I'm getting really sick of looking at them. They're just on my shelf and I'm, I'm, I'm about ready to take them all back and use them as kindling. So um, because I have these books and I can't give them away because, uh, you know, we're not going to the events we were to be going to and we were scheduled to do speaking engagements and conferences so uh, find me online and i'll send you a book fantastic and the title of the book leaders under fire a ceo's survival guide to navigating corporate crisis and so we say corporate crisis but the reality is uh, we're finding that a lot of people in the public sector nonprofit organizations are getting a lot of uh, a lot of use out of it so it's it's sort of taken off we're we're actually pleasantly surprised the response to the book so far okay let's uh, i know you don't can't reveal necessarily but donald trump has requested a copy <laughs> you know the thing is about my business and that is uh, helping people communicate whether it be through uh, crisis uh, uh, or challenging issues management situations is you can only help people who admit they have a problem or a lot like <laughs> aa sponsors oh that's a belly only... laugh on my part okay <laughs> Right. So I can only help you if you admit you have a problem. It's not my job to convince you you have a problem. So I think President Trump is one of those people who probably thinks things are just going along dandy and wouldn't need to, to read a book like mine. In fact, you could, instead of the word CEO, you, I mean, in fact, government, you really are a CEO, you're a chief executive officer of the country. You could substitute, though, prime minister or president or premier or or chief medical officer of health in 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 reading this book couldn't you oh absolutely yeah it's certainly it doesn't matter what you are you could be a ceo you could be a c-suite leader you can be uh, a politician um you can be someone who aspires to one of those positions you don't have to even be in one of those positions we're hearing from a lot of people who work for organizations in management you know mid-management uh, slightly upper management positions and they want to be ceos one day they want to run the organization or an organization and so it's a great book in terms of uh, of learning um so ceo nursery right 
yeah, certainly. Yeah, because, certainly. I mean, that's the, the reality of much of this, and this is why many companies choose to, when they get a new CEO, they get somebody either from just one level or two levels down, or more likely they get somebody from another organization that is either more bigger or, or just slightly smaller. They, they don't go looking deep down in. They don't bring somebody often fresh in. They bring in somebody who's perhaps got some, some history. Yeah, these are tough positions to get into sort of from the the outside, you know, if you don't have that CEO executive level position. I know a lot of people who have applied for these jobs. I've I've heard from some of them. People are emailing me or LinkedIn messaging me and saying, you know, I want to read this book. I've applied for two or three jobs and I can't figure out why I'm not getting it. And one look at their LinkedIn profile suggests that maybe they're, you know, I call it a lily pad. They're one lily pad away from the position. They're, They're trying to skip a step in the process that maybe your next you know, maybe you're a manager of you know maybe you're a manager of uh, geology with a, a mining company and the next step you need to be is in a vp position uh, before you aspire to be the ceo so sometimes people are trying to lily pad from like a, i call it middle management all the way up to the ceo and there is a place in between but sometimes it's like snakes and ladders though conway you you realize that you you if you just touch on that one next tile or that one next space in the game there's a ladder that's going to take you right up to 99 or or 98 it's so close Uh, there are great people at lower levels who maybe should be nurtured without let's face it some of this is is nepotism as well there is look at board of directors boards of directors tend to have certain people on 16 boards of directors and i don't know if the cross fertilization is is this People say that's the why they're doing it, but in fact, in many cases, it's, you know, buddy-buddy. Well, you know, even you touch on uh, boards of directors, not to get too Marshall McLuhan-esque on you, but I always tell companies the medium is the message, and often your board of directors... Sends a message. It sends a message. It's a medium, you know. If you want to go and work for a company, maybe you're a a sought-after young up-and-coming executive or a seasoned executive looking for a new challenge, and a company comes to you and says, or a headhunter comes to you and says, are you interested in uh, applying for this job? Uh, the first thing a lot of these people do is they go and look and see who's on the board of directors. Brilliant idea. Right. Right. I mean, if you're, uh, you know, a, uh, a female executive and you're, you're looking at a company, well, you know, the board often communicates the culture of the company. And so does the board reflect society? Do you have, you know, for example, you know, women in. in no, it's positions? 16 older guys usually. It's, uh, I think, uh, and I'm certainly not a board composition expert, but uh, having worked with a lot of companies, I can certainly suggest that, you know, there are a lot of organizations that, you know, still have some some work to do, for sure. There's no doubt about no, let's, that. But, uh, let's go to yeah, the go title. Ahead. Let's go to the title of your book, Leadership Under Fire. I mean, it kind of suggests that at the top level, there's always a crisis. There's always some sort of blaze to be putting out. There's always something that you need to, you know, smother somewhere. I know, maybe smother is not the right word, but, you know, something you've <laughs> got to have that fire extinguisher ready. And maybe, maybe, and I'm, I haven't read the book yet. I will admit, here's, here's a grand admission to the audience. I have, my copy it has not arrived yet, but not, not through 
Fraser's, uh, um, uh, it's, it, we've had attempts. In fact, let's go, we'll return to our question in just a minute. You did attempt to come to Sudbury to launch. You did attempt to have an event here in Sudbury, and we can just touch on that briefly. We've jumped right into it, which is a great conversation, but what many of your listeners may not know is I'm actually from Sudbury. My dad uh, worked for Falkenbridge for 30 years. My father-in-law worked for Falkenbridge for 36 years. Um, I went to LaSalle Secondary School, um, went to school Laurentian and Canada College, both. Now the world and, knows, uh, Conway. Now everybody knows you're from <laughs> Sudbury. I, you know, I'm very proud of those uh, those roots. Uh, you know, it's gritty, hardworking, but also smart. I think Sudbury does not get the reputation that it should get uh, often as being a very innovative, intelligent, on top of the hardworking blue collar stuff. And, and Hugh, here's another thing that you may not even know is I got my very first radio gig at Laurentian Campus Radio when it was called CFLR. It wasn't even CKLU. And we were in a... Portable, portable in the, in the parking lot oh i i remember well conway and my boss at the time who the, probably the only person who would hire me even for a volunteer job was carl jorgensen who's still in town and uh, carl i don't know what he's doing these days but uh, i think he was at department of fisheries and oceans for a while uh, but carl was at Laurentian, and, and and so i got the 8 a.m to noon slot on Saturday mornings, which was the only slot a real university student wouldn't take. And I only got it because I might have misrepresented the truth and said I was in university at the time when I was really still in high school. And so um, so I started at uh, the old CFLR Laurentian Campus radio station right there in the parking lot. And, uh, I, you know, Carl, um, I think, probably pulled a couple clumps of hair out. There were, I, I believe there were some CRTC complaints. Yeah. So anyways, that's where, that's where I started. You at, cut uh, your teeth at Laurentian. <laughs> that is hilarious. I think I actually true. did know that, Conway. But, you know, it's wonderful to be, have you on this station where you actually began. Yes, just just a few years ago. <laughs> <laughs> when, when we have a 50th anniversary, we'll have to have you on for that, for sure. Uh, so you did, att- you did attempt to come to Sudbury, you did attempt to, uh, and then everything fell apart because of the pandemic. Yeah, we were scheduled, I, I believe. Um, I think the 17th of March or the 12th of March, yes. Yes, yeah, I think, yeah, I think it was, I think it was like the, yeah, something like that. It might have been the 18th even, which was my birthday. I turned 50 on March 18th, and uh, and I think we were trying to schedule it around the birthday and uh, make it uh, a fun thing. Because, you know, I, I, a couple of older and wiser communicators who I've met over the years, I've asked them in the past, if you could go back in time, what would, what would you, you do, do differently? And, and several of them said the same things, uh, which was, you know, I'd have my first book out before I was 50 because um, a lot of them didn't write it until they were 60, 65 years old and um, the knowledge was still being shared, but they weren't able to uh, take that from a business development perspective and and really leverage it. And so I got this book out three months before my 50th birthday. <laughs> and, well, congratulations uh, to you and happy birthday. Happy 50th birthday. Funny that we should say both those things in one, uh, one sentence. <laughs> Let's go back to where we were talking about the fire. Dealing with the the challenges, I mean, CEOs, some people get burned out by this because they're continually having to deal with crises. Some tend to just, uh, you know, it's just the way it is and they just seem to take it and run with it and they remain CEO for years. No heart attack, no stroke, no burnout. You know, some people thrive on 
capture um, the kind of uh, stress and crisis of a, of a situation like this. So, uh, some people don't. It doesn't make them bad or good leaders. It's kind of like presidents and prime ministers and premiers, right? You have wartime premiers and prime ministers, and you have peacetime wartime. And prime. It, it's the same idea. Some people just handle stress in, in, in different ways. I think if you were to look at how, for example, uh, Premier Doug Ford uh, during this pandemic has uh, really uh, surprised a lot of people. Everybody, of people practically. Been, Right. And, and, and so, you know, if you look at his background, uh, sports coaching, business under his father's business, and very operational. And so, you know, if we agree that, you know, the premier has an unconventional background for someone getting into provincial politics as a premier, in a situation like this, he's actually able to show the, the skills and traits that he has developed over his lifetime in a situation like this, Whereas the prime minister, you know, has equally done, uh, you know, a good job communicating. He's more, I would call an empathy facing communicator, um, a little less operational. He's left a lot of the operations communications to Minister Christian Freeland and to uh, Minister Morneau, whereas he's been more the, you know, the heart and soul kind of vibe of, of, his, of his communicating. But to your point, Hugh, communications these days, if you want to be a leader, if you are a leader or you want to be a leader these days, you have to have fundamental skills in the ability to communicate effectively because the world has changed so much so just in the past 10 years, never mind the past 20 or 30 years. And the premise the past, of the book- The past two, 10 weeks. <laughs> right. And the, premise, and the premise of the book, for those who haven't read it yet, is, is really, really simple. It's speed kills careers these days. These days, more than ever, if you are not ready to communicate in a crisis, the speed alone can kill your career, can kill your company, sometimes uh, completely preventable because you simply don't have time these days. Companies and CEOs and organizations are accused, uh, tried, convicted, judged, sentenced in, in a matter of a day or two with the way we have social media, 24-hour news, an insatiable appetite for information and so many venues to, to do that. That, uh, you know, so we sort of talked about in the book about how 20 years ago, even 10 years ago, all companies had a crisis communications plan, which was like a red binder they had on the shelf. And in the event of a crisis, you pull it you out, take the binder down and, and, you know, turn the pages and follow the protocols. Right. And so that worked. That was effective at its time today. It's, to us, it's all about planning and preparation. It's making sure that, you know, you can't develop a crisis communications plan, but you can, you know, you can communicate um, uh, fundamentals with an organization during peacetime. And then when the time comes, you have to make sure that your CEOs and your executives have the ability to communicate effectively. And these days, like in a crisis, really is about how fast and efficiently can you get your message out? You don't have... 30 minutes, 40 minutes, 50 minutes. I bet you, you I bet you post, post-pandemic, there are going to be crisis binders or, or at least crisis folders in, in the CEO's, uh, on his laptop or her laptop. There's going to be, um, you know, uh, if this happens, push this button, information is here. Yeah, and you know, the crisis communications plan, the old school crisis communications plan is a, is a false sense of security, in my opinion. And there will be some companies out there who do what I do, who will be listening to this and will take issue with that. And that's fine. Take issue with it. Read my book first. <laughs> um, and, um, and and I would suggest that it is a false sense of security. And often it is the board of directors that says from a governance perspective, we need a crisis communications plan. So they need a check. They need a box checked. And so they spend 
$50,000 to have this binder. And, you know, what I always say to clients is, okay, what I want you to do is I want you to douse gasoline on all four walls of your building, set it on fire and sit in the middle and read the bloody book. Can you read the book? Can you read, no. can you sit and read a book in the middle of crisis? You've got Maybe. five reporters on hold. Yes. You're being, you're, you're being attacked by a tweet mob on Twitter. Uh, who have already convicted you on social media and the media is calling you and you what you're going to sit there and read and well maybe that's the point is that you've got to uh, be briefed on this perhaps on a regular basis it's like (laughs) it's uh, the way I I described as it's kind of like having a you know hiring a personal trainer and You've got to do it pers- weekly, monthly. Trainer. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. So you hire the personal trainer and you say, hey, Steve, listen, I want you to uh, get me in shape. Okay. And okay, we're going to we're gonna do a, a workout. going to come in and we're going to do an assessment and we're going to do the testing and we're going to do the speed test and the beep test and we're going to do all this. We're going to spend three hours together. Okay, perfect. And then you walk out and you go, all right, I'm good. Now, do you walk out of that workout going, Am I, I'm in shape now. I'm ready to run a marathon. No, it's no. a continual maintenance. And, and that's what communications is. And so, you know, I, again, I come back to the AA sponsor. I don't know, it's not my job to convince people. Those who get it, get it. And those who get it and practice sound communications uh, regularly uh, are the people who you will see climbing into the, the CEO spots or the board chair spots. They're the people these days who who really um, hit those positions more than ever because that's what boards and organizations are looking for. They're not just looking for someone with an MBA or a law degree or organizational background. Yes. That was the past. This is the present. Conway, let's go back in time just a little bit because obviously you couldn't predict this pandemic. You couldn't predict that your title actually would be really, really appropriate for this time. But let's go back because obviously you started writing this and, and had the nascent idea to do this when? When did you start going, you know what, this book should be written? So Jeff and I got together well over two years ago. We were introduced by a mutual friend here in Waterloo, where I live now, someone in the tech sector, and said, you've got to meet Jeff. You guys are a lot alike. So we met, and Jeff and I do the same thing, And but we'd, we'd work in different sectors. Uh, so I do a lot of work in mining and engineering and tech and things like that. And Jeff does more in uh, uh, tourism, aviation, that sort of thing, right? And so we do the same thing, but in different worlds. So we got together, and we'd get together for a pint every once in a while and talk about it. And then finally, Jeff said, hey, are we going to are we going to do something? Let's do something. And we, we were talking about writing a book and we, we always talked about how there was not a book out there that people could, that we felt represented the modern realities of crisis communications. And uh, my old friend, and uh, I actually hired him and brought him to Sudbury, uh, Jason Turnbull, who's gone on to work for, I worked for CBC and I hired him back in, I think, 07 when I was at CBC. And then he's gone to HSN now as a communications lead. Um, I remember Jason asked me when he got the job at HSN, you know, is there a book you'd recommend on crisis communications? He said, not yet. It's going to be written. No, at the time (laughs) we hadn't started writing it. And I was like, there isn't, there isn't, there isn't one. I really thought about it and I looked and I'm happy to share information that other people have done. I don't think that I've invented the wheel here, but there wasn't one that I felt represented and Jeff felt reflected modern day 21st century 
crisis communications, which is very, very different than, as you said, even five years ago. And so we started writing this book. And I have to tell you, Hugh, writing, I, I said to my wife, who's uh, a wonderful woman who's given birth to our four children. And I said to her, this must be what childbirth feels like. And then she laughed at me and she goes, oh, you have no idea. Yeah. And, <laughs> she said, you need a crisis communicator on that. <laughs> <laughs> but, but it was, uh, you know, it's painful because Jeff and I, you know, what, what I like about the book is Jeff and I don't agree, or in the beginning did not agree on many things. And so every page in that book so it's not a 400-page book. It's a 140-page book. Mm -hmm. And it took two years to write it because it's very efficient. It gets to the point. It has learning tips at the end of every chapter. But Jeff and I, there were points where we argued and debated over uh, a single technique, a single tactic. So everything in that book has been torture tested by two completely different crisis communicators who almost like Greek debaters in the back rooms debated and fought and argued and there were timeouts and three days, I can't talk to you and <laughs> you know, the, over two years. But at the end of the day, we agreed on everything that's in the book. So everything in the book is like, it's like getting two seasoned crisis communicators smashed into one in a book. It's not just one person's opinion it's two people's opinion and, and of uh, course the resources that you used and and examples that you used and and you know i'm sure historical facts that you you delved into yeah. and and you know proof sure. proof pudding right very story driven i mean yes. being you know someone who worked at the cbc for 20 years um, I've always had pounded it in my head that story is everything. And and in my business life, I adhere to an old phrase that I did not invent, and that is facts tell, stories sell. And, and you need facts, but you need the stories to drive it home. And so the book has lots of stories of situations that people will know about, people have read about, people have seen in the news, and we deconstruct those. And then we have examples from our, our own business lives um, obviously for reasons associated with legal non-disclosure agreements and stuff we've changed the names, names have been changed and yes and, and that sort of thing but the stories are there and the stories are real and we use actually a parable of two different CEOs two CEOs who came up together two young CEOs and they both get into CEO positions and then they're both faced with crisis of communications and of course one handles it well one does not handle it has David uh, so has David Chilton seen this I mean it sounds almost wealthy barberish in some ways you know what it is and you know we certainly didn't poach the idea from I think the idea of a parable has been around for a, a long, long time. time but certainly but certainly you know when we wrote it I remember we said you know we need a vehicle for communicating the you know the selling the, you know the, the the salient points that we're trying to get across and I think the wealthy barber you know is a one that I've heard a few people say that it uh, uh, it reminded them of that and so the parable is good because every new chapter begins with an update on the parable situation right. before we then transition into real life examples so it, it kind of worked out and the parable characters were built on a number of clients that we've both had it's over a composite a yeah, it's a, it's very much a composite, and it seems to it seems to work out work out well. But I'll tell you, Hugh, writing a book to anybody who's written a book, you know, I used to I used to bust up Wob Rice a lot. I've known Wob a long time. Wob is a CBC host in Sudbury who is going to be leaving. My understanding is, I think that's public. It is. Uh, Wob is an author, and I used to I used to bust Wob up all the time about about his books about being uh, you know do you sip do you sip your martinis with a pinky out and everything I used to bust those 
calls all the time. And um, I'll tell you, writing a book, I have a newfound respect for anybody who writes any book. It really is. Uh, there are a lot of people who talk about writing a book and then those who, who do it. And uh, it's a very arduous experience. And I tip my hat to anybody who's written a book, whether it's, you know, become a bestseller or not. It's uh, it really is a, a labor of love. So 140 three pages yeah it's and it's very yeah, i'm just waiting for you know of course there's going to be edition two second edition um is there going to be a chapter on the pandemic that's not a bad idea actually i hadn't even thought about it i'm just I, the reality is is that putting out a book just before a pandemic you know obviously killed <laughs> well but yeah, on one hand you know people said oh my god this must be good for business i'm like well on one hand you know it's been not good for the book launch obviously because we had all of these events planned and so, you know, you don't want to put out a book right before a pandemic, but if you are going to put out a book right before a pandemic, it better be on crisis communications. So, you know, we, it's given myself and Jeff, it's given us a lot of exposure to new client bases and people we're helping out. But I'll be honest with you, Hugh, I've said to, uh, I was just having this conversation with my wife, that this is not a selling economy we're in right now with no. the pandemic. It's the giving economy. And so we've invested quite a bit. I've given away... I think uh, I've got a new pile. I've got a new pile here. I'm just looking out on my desk about a hundred books to give away. But if, when, if I add it all up, I think we've given away about 400 books. We've paid for the postage. We've, we've spent thousands of dollars shipping the book out well, to, anybody, to anybody who wants it. Because you know what? That's why I wrote it. We, we wrote it for people to read it. And I don't expect people, hey, you know what? I, hold on to your money. Don't buy it on Amazon right now. And this thing's all said and done go ahead and do it. But like right now, you should be holding on to your money for groceries and kids university and so like that. So right. we're just, you know, we're just kind of giving it away right now. I've done a lot of free consultation calls uh, with companies who call and say, hey, can we get you on the phone for an hour? How much? And I'm like, right. don't worry about it. It's an hour. Well, you right. know what, Conway? I have to say your altruism in this uh, distribution it really might have an incredible impact uh, whether it's in policing or governance or just cor the corporate world, I, I think what you're doing by distributing your book is uh, a gratis is is an incredibly it says something about your commitment to community. Thank you for that. I, I you know you don't write uh, and I, I was told this early on, you don't write business books to make money. David Shilton aside, most of us will not make money. That's not why you write a book. You don't write a book to get rich, to make money. If that's, that really is, that's like, you know, winning the uh, World Series of Poker. It's one in, in a million. You, you write it because you feel like you have something to say and you think it's valuable and you want to share it with people. It would be if interesting. It, if it, if it, if, yeah, go ahead. It would be interesting to see at the end when people do make requests and when you do make uh, sales, what your distribution globally is going to be. Are there people in Europe who will read it in India, in America, and go, ah, this is really interesting. Um, here's here's information spread truly in a in a global way. Yeah, we've talked about this. We, you know, we've um, when I said in the top, we've hit Amazon international bestseller. We've hit bestseller in like Germany, the UK, Australia, the US, Canada. When this is all said and done, and we've got a little more cash flow to work with, we've talked about getting it uh, really, really well translated into you know different different languages. languages. Yes, and getting out there because the stories are a lot of the stories in there are, are global in nature. We have a lot of the stories that are not you know 
just based in um, in Canada and the U.S. Oh, and you've done so, audio as well now. You've done an audio book. Yeah, we, we hired. I, I, it's amazing that the things you learn when you write a book. So I, I discovered Voices.com, and it's this thing. And, uh, Hugh, you've got a great voice. You should go on to Voices.com and <laughs> put your voice down as a voice actor. But you can search, and you can say, I am looking for someone in this age bracket. I'm looking for someone who has this sound and everything. And then they give you you know a list of people, and you can send out like a page from your book Examples. for auditioning. Yes. And, well, I ended up having to go through, like, 75 auditions. I don't know why, because I know a guy named Conway Fraser who's got a great voice. <laughs> yeah, you know what, though? Uh, it's it's difficult. A lot of people have said that. They said, you worked in radio. Why wouldn't you do this yourself? And I said, <laughs> you know, it's difficult to write a book that that says when a crisis hits, you need to hire an expert. And then not hire an, an expert. An expert to do it. <laughs> so, well, as we, so, as, we approach so, the, yes, as we approach the end of this, uh, this program, Conway, I have to say thank you so much for, for, I know there's so much more to talk about. I'm certain that the entrepreneur world will also listen to, to this, so we'll put it out probably on LinkedIn. I know that you've probably recorded some of this as well. Please, if you are a CEO or if you're an aspiring CEO, make contact with Conway Fraser. Conway, any last words? Remind us the title of the book for starts. Yeah, the book is called Leaders Under Fire, the CEO's survival guide to navigating corporate crisis. Uh, Hugh, listen, thanks for your interest. You've always been a good friend and uh, love what you guys are doing up there. Look forward to getting home soon and doing this face-to-face, uh, -face, maybe over a pint, you and I, huh? You've been listening to a conversation between myself, Hugh Cruzel, and Conway Fraser. Read his book, Leaders Under Fire. This is Hugh Cruzel, and this is 96.7 on your FM dial, CKLU. Do listen asynchronously at a time convenient for you. Just Google my name and podcast.